Hello, you are listening to Second City Sermons, a ministry of Second City Church in Midtown Harrisburg. This Epiphany in Lent, we are back in the Gospel of Luke, where we see God revealed in Jesus. As is common for Luke, what we see is the kingdom coming to all, but maybe most often to the unexpected. We'll see Jesus challenge his disciples, the rich young ruler and the proud religious leader, but commend a persistent widow, insist that the children come to him, and reveal that a blind beggar can see him for who he is even better than his own disciples. Finally, we will make our way with Jesus, his disciples, and the crowd around him as he enters Jerusalem on Holy Week long ago. We'd love to meet you, and we hope you'll consider coming and joining with us each Sunday morning at 10 a.m. in the heart of Midtown Harrisburg. You can find us online at secondcitychurch.org and on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. We hope you enjoy the sermon. God bless. Lord in heaven, uh, we're thankful, Lord, for your teachings uh, here found in the Gospel of Luke, even... uh, when they're difficult and challenging. We're thankful when they, when they resonate with what we know to be true. God, we pray that this morning you'd speak to us through these words of our Lord. God, give us soft hearts and open ears. God, we have so much else going on in our lives, but we've come this morning, Lord, hoping to hear from you. And so speak, Lord. We are listening. Amen. Uh, Some of you know the author, John Ortberg. He uh, told this story in his book, When the Game is Over, It All Goes Back in the Box. I think I've heard this story told a couple different ways. So this is his rendering of it. So this man is being tailgated uh, by a woman who's clearly in a hurry. And he comes up to a yellow light. And you know there's like two kinds of people that come up to yellow lights, right? There's the people... (laughs) Like me, who are like, I'm going for it. I got this. And then there's the people like, oh, yellow, stop. Well, this man was one of those people. And this woman, keep in mind, she's in a hurry. And she is so mad at this man. And she's just going crazy. She's waving her hands at, at him. She's, you know, yelling. He can't hear it very well because, you know, she's inside of her car. But he's looking through his rearview mirror and he's like, what's going on? Okay. She is so, so mad. And she's like, you know, she's mid-rant, and all of a sudden there's this on her window, and she looks, and there's this police officer. And the police officer says, "Uh, you need to get out of the car. And so he takes her out of the car, puts her inside of his car, and takes her down um, to the station and fingerprints her and has her there for a few hours, and then uh, eventually she's released. And um, the officer gives her, you know, her belongings, and he says, I'm, I'm really sorry. I'm, I'm so mistaken, ma'am. I pulled you over because I pulled up behind your car, and you were blowing your horn, and you were making all these bad gestures, and all this foul language was coming out of your mouth. And then I looked at your car, and on the back it said... What would Jesus do? And I saw around the the license plate, the frame of your license plate said, choose life. And then there was a bumper sticker that said, follow me to Sunday school. 
And there was one of those Jesus fish emblems that says ictus in it. And I thought, this woman stole this car. <laughs> this woman stole this car. Um, and he says, you know, the world gets pretty tired of people who have Christian. This is quoting John Ortberg. This one. Uh, the world gets pretty tired of people who have Christian bumper stickers on their cars, Christian fish signs on their trunks, Christian books on their shelves, Christian stations on their radios, Christian jewelry around their necks, Christian videos for their kids, Christian magazines for their coffee tables, um, but don't have a life that resembles Jesus and a love in their hearts for Jesus. Or we could say like this, hypocrisy is easily one of the main reasons why so many people, maybe yourself included, think Jesus is crazy and Christians shouldn't even be considered. And we all know that's true. And we could list other reasons why people don't really give a good go of Christianity. Um, of course, questions like how in the world can there be one true religion? Or one that I've struggled with at a few key points in my own life. How, how can there be this good God when there is such extensive suffering in the world? You know, those kinds of questions. But we also know, we all know, that one of the big, big reasons why people say, I don't even want to consider Christianity. I don't want to have anything to do with Jesus or the church or any of that is because of this big word, hypocrisy. Part of what I want you to hear this morning is this. Jesus sees it too. He does. Jesus sees it too. Uh, if you were listening attentively, uh, Isaiah chapter 1, the Lord way back in the 7th century BC, he saw it too. And Jesus hates it too. The Lord has always hated it. You're not the only one who looks on what people say they believe, acting completely different, and go, oh, yuck. Jesus doesn't love it, not one bit. Jesus actually calls out the hypocrisy of the leaders. Um, Luke, hopefully you notice, puts these two passages of these religious leaders right next to this poor widow and I think what he's teaching us is that he wants our hearts completely and he wants our lives completely. But look at just the first verse here, okay, in Luke chapter 20, verse 45. It says this, and in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, here's the thing, okay, this morning is the, this little passage right here is the last passage in the gospel of Luke where Jesus addresses the religious leaders. Here it says the scribes, but we know from the, actually even just this chapter, there's also the chief priests and the Sadducees, at least their representatives, and the Pharisees, and they're all there in the temple courts. And Jesus sort of has one last thing to say to them. Um, and you might remember that, of course, during this Lenten season, we've seen a lot of conflict between these religious leaders and Jesus. I mean, just last week, we, we saw that the, the scribes and the chief priests, it said they sent spies to Jesus, and they were saying things like this, like, oh, you clearly talk from God, and so we must hear from you. Should we give taxes to Caesar? 
but we know they were trying to catch him. And then we saw, of course, in the next paragraph, the Sadducees coming up and, oh, we're going to ask him the trickiest question possible about the resurrection, and maybe this way we'll catch him. So we know there's all this tension that's going on, um, and the tension here is at a peak. Um, and what Luke sort of wonderfully makes clear is that though Jesus is talking to his disciples, how he begins the paragraph is by saying, and in the hearing of all of the people. <laughs> so Jesus is actually just confronting this hypocrisy, not just sort of in the vague, but with the people right there in front of him who he's talking about. Which is to say, again, what you need to hear first this morning is that Jesus sees it and he hates it just as much as you do. And he calls it out. Here's what he says. Beware of the scribes. Scribes would have been sort of the, relig- the, the, the ones who knew the scriptures so well that they were consulted with regards to sort of legal dynamics with regards to the Old Testament scriptures. Okay, uh, Experts in the Bible, you could say who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. Here's what we see with these guys. Pious pomposity and pretentious profiteering. I thought of that myself because my name is Peter and uh, I'm a pastor who's a Presbyterian. Um, so, okay. So first, this uh, first section here. Jesus gives a condemnation of them. These religious leaders, these experts in the law of God, these teachers who were to know the Holy Scriptures and apply it not just to their own lives, but to the life of their community. And he says, first, it's just because they're pompous. They're grand. Man, they are self-important. And he says, you know what? You can see this just by their clothes. That's the first thing he calls out. They like to walk around in long robes. I like to think it's a little bit longer than this, just so I feel better about myself right now. (laughs) Uh, I know, okay, I know none of you are like eyeing my ministerial gown right now and going like, hey, where can I pick one of those up? Um... But, but that, back then, a long robe said a lot, okay? The length of your robe said um, how much manual labor you had to do in life. Um, I mean, sometimes, you know, like, long gowns are hard to walk in. I've actually found that to be the case even with this ministerial gown occasionally. But um, ladies, you know that sometimes if you've got like a cocktail dress on, it can be tricky. And you never go weed your garden with a long dress on. And guys, I guarantee none of you like put on your suit and tie, you know, something you'd wear to a wedding, and you're like, time to go mow the lawn. Nobody does that, okay? And nobody did it then. So in some ways, the length of your robe had to do with what you did, and, and at least you were above the people that worked in the ground. So you kind of looked down on them a little bit. And also the length of your robe had to do with what kind of, what, uh, how much fabric you could afford. So it kind of made you feel better about yourself. Um, Some of you, I would bet a lot of you, have seen the Instagram account, Preachers in Sneakers. If you haven't, you should check it out. It's uh, both depressing and mostly depressing. 
um, it highlights preachers and their designer fashion. One pastor was preaching in rare off-white Nike Air Force Ones that cost a mere $2,500. Another pastor uh, highlighted on that Instagram account uh, was preaching in a Louis Vuitton suede jacket that ran a mere $4,800. And you see these and you go, what? Really? And Jesus did too. His world isn't terribly distant. So Jesus is calling out their sort of pomposity. They're, they're grand. They're a big deal, and they wanted everyone to know it. But here's an interesting thing. Some people didn't think that the long robes necessarily had to do with them showing off uh, what they could afford, but actually how righteous they were. So some of you might know this, but in the book of Numbers in chapter 15, um, there's actually a command given to Moses to have tassels on the edges and the ends of your garments. And what those tassels were supposed to do were to remind you of the law of God. They were given there sort of like a monument to say, hey, I, I've given you the law and this will help you rem- remember that. And so these people didn't just have tassels, but they had them going as long as possible all the way down to the ground so that everybody else knew well, these guys take God really seriously. They're a big deal religiously. They would talk about how long and how consistent they were with deep and intense quiet times. Um, how many books they were reading, how consistent they were at every church event, how perfectly quiet their children were, and how much their children just couldn't wait to get in the car every Sunday morning to go to church. You know, these are the ones who are always somehow working the Bible into every single sentence with their coworkers. They knew the law of God, and they wanted everybody to know it. They're piously pompous. Jesus goes on to say that they love greetings in the marketplaces. There's, there's actually an account um, of a couple rabbis who were miffed. They were aggrieved, and they were bewildered. Because they were going to meet one another, and this is actually a rabbinical account. Uh, they were going to m- meet one another, and on their way, they passed by a bunch of people, and they, they were recounting to each other, and they said that these people would pass them by, and they, they said this, may your peace be great. Sounds nice enough, but these guys were miffed because the people that passed them by in the street did not add what was a customary addition to that greeting, which was, My master. My master. So not only did they want to be greeted, but they wanted to be greeted with my master. And these people got the nice seats at church and the best seats at the dinner parties. Um, Maybe some of you have heard recently that uh, Hillsong in New York City, which is now closed because of other controversies, um, had a VIP sitting area in the very front None of our VIP people showed up today. Our first two pews are empty. Um, but, uh, you know, this is where Justin Bieber and, and other folk would sit when they went to Hillsong in New York City. If you were a, a celebrity, you could sit up front. Um, and if you think that's crazy, well, actually, most of you may know this. Many, many, many churches, particularly in Great Britain and the United States, had pews that you would pay for 
And that's where you would sit. Um, and that existed really up until just after the Civil War. Um, here's something interesting that you may not know. For the great majority of the life of the church, there were no chairs and no pews in sanctuaries. All the way up through the Reformation. John Calvin, if you were worshiping at John Calvin's church in Geneva, you would have stood the entire time. Really. I mean, the pews are a fairly modern invention, and of course they cost a lot of money to make. And so, um, if you could afford one, you would buy a fairly nice one, and often they were boxes, so other people wouldn't um, get into your box. Or maybe so you could just keep your children in. That's probably what they were for. And, and you would pay more money for the ones that were closer up. Okay. Um, Mark Twain actually went into a church in Manhattan that was still doing this. And he wandered down the aisle and he took a seat in an empty pew. And um, when the family that actually owned this, you know, little box and pew came, um, they just crowded in with Mark Twain. And here's what happened. This is what I read. The, he, the, the father, the head of that family there, handed Mark Twain a little piece of paper. And, um, and on that paper it said, do you know how much I paid for this pew? And supposedly on that paper he had written the number that he had paid for that pew. And um, it, Pardon Mark Twain's French, but Mark Twain said, you paid too damn much. Um, so what I'm again suggesting to you is that this is not a distant world from our own. It's actually not. This is not something that's crazy. What Jesus is dealing with here with these men. We hear these things and we have the exact same response that Jesus had. This should not be the case. These people who are to be experts in the law of God, who were sought out to guide the community in the way of the Lord, using their power, a leader in the family of God, ought never to use his power and his standing for his own gain. And this is the case not just for leaders. I mean, this is a good word for me. But we all know this, right? That Christians should be marked by those who love well, who serve sacrificially, who pursue justice and righteousness, who are quick to forgive, who are eager to give rather than to take, who are slow to speak and quick to listen, who think of others uh, more highly than themselves. Things that we sort of all instinctively know, those should be the marks of the people of God. Yet, I'm reading a book right now that's called Celebrities for Jesus. Maybe you've seen it. It's by um, Katie Beattie. Um, she explores in that book how the church, just like society at large, is absolutely sort of fixated on uh, status and power, fame, what we can have and control. She um, talks about, she works for Christianity Today, and she talks about how years ago, actually in 2014, she had actually received a tip on a certain story about this very, very well-known Christian apologist, this global audience that this man had, and she had heard 
that this man had had affairs around the world and that he owned his own sort of massage parlor down in Atlanta and some sketchy things had happened. It was a tip. And so she actually got to interview somebody that was really high up in this man's uh, organization. And she actually asked this person if, the, if, the, if there was any truth to these you know, rumors, this tip that she had heard. And of course, the person denied it. Right? You, this man has, has defended the gospel in such secular cultures He's written book after book. I mean, people go to him to have answers to the hard, hard questions of life. He's a scribe. Of course, probably most of you know that it was found out that for all of his importance, uh, Ravi Zacharias lived a massively double life. And he used his position of power within the church for abuse. None of the stuff that we're hearing here in Luke is at all distant from our experience now. And then Jesus goes on to say that they profit off of the widows. They profit off the widows. If you've spent some time in the Old Testament, you know that one of the consistent commands of the Bible is that the people of God are to care for the widows. I mean, if you're an expert in the law of God, you know, you know at least one thing, and that that's that God's people are to care for the vulnerable and the needy. Specifically, mentioned time and again, are the widows. Of course, to be a widow was to be the most vulnerable and the most in need. Scribes would have known this. And they would have actually also been the lawyers at times in the religious courts. And so a widow who was wondering, what right do I have, might have actually gone to a scribe and said, can you argue my case in this court? And the scribe is profiting off of this position that he has. And all of it, Jesus says, is even couched in prayer. For a pretense, make long prayers. Friends, if you look at the hypocrisy of the church and you go, yuck, this should not be the case, so does our Lord. Jesus is right there with you. Okay, let's, let's consider the second paragraph here that we have before us in Luke. The beginning of chapter 21. So Jesus, you'll remember, is teaching in the temple courts. And uh, in, in, around the temple courts, there were offering boxes, sort of like our pedestals that are at the end where you can put tithes and offerings in. But they were shaped in sort of trumpets, or think of a big tuba, and you could put your coins and your tithes and your offerings in these receptacles. Um, and that's what you would do if you made your way to the temple uh, and you were seeking to be obedient to the Lord. You would bring some of your tithes, your offerings, and you would give to the work of the church there in Jerusalem. So chapter 21 begins, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins these small copper coins would have been the least valuable currency of the time that, would, that was in use. It would have been valued at about uh, one one-hundredth denarius. That's a, a, a coin that's used often in the scriptures. 
And basically two of those would have accounted for 10 minutes of the average labor. 10 minutes of work. This widow that Jesus sees here is the poor of the poor. Um, the lowly. The one who was to be cared for and looked after by the scribes that he had just mentioned. She was in great need. And maybe some of you think because of that, why should she give? I mean, why would Jesus commend someone like that to give? Keep what little you have. Jesus says this, though. Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. And yet, I still think that even as we hear Jesus' commendation of this poor widow, I think, my guess is that some of us are still asking this question, right? Why does she give? Why would Jesus commend her giving? Why not Jesus say, you have such great need. Keep those two coins. Um, is this just another example of one of the other reasons why people don't want to consider Christian faith? The church just keeps taking. Um, but I want to mention a few things um, that I think maybe help tie this woman's giving and just some good observations about this woman's giving and help us maybe also connect it to the idea of the previous past, uh, uh, paragraph and the idea of hypocrisy and pious pomposity, and profiteering and all that. So here's one thing. God doesn't get our leftovers. Um, God gets our first fruits. That's a theme in the Bible. We give the first to the Lord. And, and the best, he doesn't get what's left over. Um, this woman gave not what was left over after covering her necessities. She would not have had anything to give. She wouldn't have had anything to give. Don't give to God what is left over. The second thing I think um, that is really sort of lovely from this passage is that we learn that no one is too poor to give. No one is ever too poor to give. Because giving is not about amount in the Bible. It's not. It's about participation. And God actually wants you to participate in the economy of heaven. All of you have something to give. Uh, 2 Corinthians tells us that the Lord loves a cheerful giver. The book of Acts tells us that it's better to give than to receive. If we take that together, we would have to say that it would be this woman's loss to keep those coins rather than to give them. She is participating in the economy of heaven. The third thing that I think is worth note noting is that giving is an act of faith. Giving is always an act of faith. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity says this, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. Why would he say that that's the rule? 
Because giving has to put us in a place of faithful dependence on the Lord. Giving is always an act of faith. The fourth fourth thing that I want you to see is this principle. And I think this is completely true, but I, I did put almost always. The fourth idea is almost always your heart follows your dollars. Um, you know that if you want to get into running and you really want to stick to it, don't buy the cheap running shoes. You'll be like, well, I barely pay anything for those. I don't really have to use them. Your heart follows your dollars. Where your treasure is, the scriptures tell us, your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. So how can Jesus say that she gave more than these rich people who were giving around her. Because Jesus doesn't count out the money. He doesn't count the coins. What he does is he weighs our hearts. And that's the only thing that matters to him. Where your heart is, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And that's the main point that Jesus is getting at. Where's the heart of the scribes? What is it that we hate about hypocrisy? Somebody says and does something that we know is completely different than what they say they believe and say where their heart is. That's what's so ugly about it. That's what we find so absolutely disgusting about hypocrisy, a life that's lived in conflict with what one says they believe What Jesus is telling us here is that he wants your heart, all of it. He wants your heart, all of it. Jesus had no problem sitting at dinner with the very well-to-do. We just recently saw that he ate. In fact, he invited himself over to Zacchaeus' house, right? The rich tax collector. Uh, I mentioned a couple falls ago when we were looking at the book of Philippians over and over again because it needs to be repeated. The church in Philippi was largely started by Lydia, this wealthy, wealthy woman who was a trader of purple goods. The church continued largely because she was so wealthy and sustained it. Jesus doesn't have a problem with that. But what Jesus does want is the same thing we long for. A life that is consistent. A heart that is followed by actions. Belief that doesn't stop with just mere words, but a life lived. And the Lord tells Samuel in 1 Samuel 16 that man looks on the outward appearance. But the Lord looks at the heart. I know that there's a temptation, and I guarantee we all actually feel it, because I I know I feel it. Um, To desire to look like we kind of have it together a little bit. Um, To take things and maybe hoard them. To covet good seats. Y'all, these are actually pretty good seats up here. You can see really well. Someday you're going to get it. Um, To have nice greetings. 
have your name remembered, all that kind of stuff. But the Lord really couldn't care less how much you give. Um, the Bible tells us that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. The Lord never needs your money. But he wants your heart. And where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And when you give your heart to him fully, it will change your life completely. Um, let me end with this. Okay. Um, I would guess that basically all of us in this room have probably heard the name, at least, C.S. Lewis. Most well-known Christian author of the 20th century, easily, and honestly, maybe the most well-known author of the 20th century. Um, when he died, his entire estate was valued at 37,000 pounds. Now, you might say, well, that was 1964, Peter, inflation. Y'all, 36,000 pounds, his entire estate, like his house and everything, 37,000. Sorry, 37,000 pounds. Um, you might know this, but he gave away all of the proceeds from all of his books. Um, his first really well, uh, book that sold really well was the book, The Screwtape Letters, a masterpiece that I hope you've read. Um, what he did with that is he said, all of the profits of the Screwtape Letters are going to go to the, uh, the Clergy Widows Fund of the Church of England, the church that he was a part of. And so it all went there, and he didn't set it up very wisely, and so he actually ended up getting into some legal trouble because of that, because he was supposed to pay taxes on all the, pro the proceeds of it too, and he didn't have the money to pay the taxes. So one of his good friends got him out of that, and he also set up a trust so that all the proceeds from the sale of his books could all go into this trust in such a way that taxes wouldn't be levied against him. Um... Maybe you've heard this, but at one point, um, well into his career, uh, C.S. Lewis, by his own brother, had all of the house bills and all the finances from their house taken away from Lewis's control. His brother, Warney, lived with him basically his entire adult life. And Lewis was so generous and free with his money that they actually ended up not being able to pay the electricity bill. And Warney said, enough is enough. You need to stop giving away. But listen to this. He wrote in a letter, I'm a panicky person about money myself, which is most shameful confession and a thing uh, dead against our Lord's wishes. And poverty frightens me more than anything except large spiders and the tops of cliffs. One is sometimes even tempted to say that if God wanted us to live like the lilies of the field, he might have given us an organism more like theirs. But of course he's right. And when you meet anyone who does live like the lilies, one sees that he is. So how can someone with this deep fear that's only surpassed by large spiders and tall cliffs of poverty be so free and so generous? And a life that we all have thought so lovely and books written that so many people, whether you're a Christian or not, have found so compelling and so interesting. How does this work? Well, let, let me end just with this last quote. 
He says, Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I want you. That's what Jesus is saying. Give your life completely to the Lord. I want you. Let me give us maybe 30 seconds of reflection and then I'll pray for us. Lord in heaven, uh, take our life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Sure, Lord, take our silver and our gold, uh, not a mite would we withhold. Take our intellect or take us. Lord, and as you do so, may the world see the beauty in us of the good news of Jesus, a God who gives of himself that others might live. Shape us into the loveliness of your image, Lord Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Second City Sermons Podcast. We hope this sermon has encouraged you to worship God and to celebrate the gospel of Jesus. Please consider subscribing to this podcast and joining us in person each Sunday at 10 a.m. You can find us online at secondcitychurch.org and on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Thanks again for listening. God bless.